Montgomery Talks, our regular podcast on local issues. And my guest today is John Delaney, who's here taking a break from the campaign trail. Welcome, Mr. Delaney. It's great to be here. So I just checked the polls. They don't look very good for you. And I'm curious, and I've, I've seen a lot of stuff on Twitter and Facebook that says maybe it's time for you to back out of the race. What's your plan? My plan is not to back out of the race. My plan is to uh, stay in through the Iowa caucus. Through the Iowa caucus. And you have an Iowa State apparatus put in place, mm-hmm. correct? We do. You've been in Iowa since? For two years almost. For two years almost. Yeah. And We've got eight offices open. I've been to all 99 counties in Iowa. And the last poll I saw said you're at 1%. Mm-hmm. It seems like you've got a long way to go to be anywhere close to Warren or Biden or any of the other top folks. What do yeah, you do? I mean, the race dynamics are, are interesting right now, in my opinion, right? So we have three front runners who collectively capture 70 to 75% of the vote. And I think all three of them are vulnerable against Donald Trump for different reasons. But I think our three front runners who capture 75% of the vote are not the best candidate for us to put up against Donald Trump. And I think the number one thing for Democratic primary voters is to beat Donald Trump by any measure. So that makes this race pretty interesting because there's another 15 or so candidates in the race who are splitting 25% of the vote. And I think any number of them, including myself, would be a better candidate to go against Donald Trump. So the question between now and the Iowa caucus is, will Democratic primary voters look at it the way I do? which is that our number one job is to beat Donald Trump, and our three front runners are not the best candidates to do that. So go through the three candidates. Sure. What, what exactly is Joe Biden's vulnerability? Well, I think Vice President Biden's vulnerability is really twofold. The first is that he's got a very long and distinguished track record in public service, which I admire greatly, which is not normally a vulnerability. It's actually normally an asset. But against someone like Donald Trump, who will just pick and pick and pick at things that happened 30 years ago, it creates some issues for the vice president, I believe. And then it kind of, that kind of ties into the second issue, which is I think voters in the country are fundamentally looking for some new ideas about how to deal with some of the big challenges we have. They want those ideas, I think, to be practical and pragmatic. They want them to make sense, but they want a better story to be told about what we can do for our future. And again, I don't think the vice president is actually running on new ideas. He's running on this notion that he's a very steady set of hands, which I think he is. But I think against Donald Trump, again, I think you got to really be able to paint a better vision for what the future is going to be. I think those are his vulnerabilities. I think the vulnerabilities of Senator Sanders and Senator Warren are, are a little more obvious, and that is they're advocating for some policy positions that not only do a majority of the American people don't support, but it's not clear to me that a majority of Democrats even support them. And I think the 2020 election is going to be decided by the center, by independents, by folks in the middle, just like the 2018 midterm election was decided. Because the president's going to have great turnout of his voters. That's clear. And he's doing everything he can to make sure he energizes his base. And I believe Democrats are going to turn out in record numbers as well, because we did in 2018, because we understand what the stakes are. So what that tells me is if you think about why we lost 2016 to Trump, we lost the center. Voters overwhelmingly believed Donald Trump was the more moderate candidate compared to Hillary Clinton. Some people don't 
like seem to want to believe that today because of what Trump has become. But if you actually look at voters in 2016, voters who walked into the voting booth somewhat undecided and who were more moderate or independent overwhelmingly broke towards Donald Trump. The opposite happened in 2018 when we flipped the House. Those same voters walked into that voting booth and they broke towards the Democrats. And so I think the roadmap for beating Trump in 2020 is to put forth a candidate who can win the center. And I think some of the things that Senator Sanders and Senator Warren are running on, again, very good people, but I think they're just too far left. And we risk what happened with McGovern, Mondale, and Dukakis. But more and more we hear from the Democrats about how they want something. They don't want the moderate positions. They want something like Medicare for all. They want something like the Green New Deal. Are they just the louder Democrats who are saying this? Or is this truly, I mean, do you have numbers backing up saying that they don't actually support these policies? Yeah, I mean, let's talk about Medicare for all. So I think what Democrats want, which I think they're right to want, is a form of universal health care system. And I've proposed a form of universal health care system with a plan called Better Care. And I believe every American should have health care as a basic human right, as part of citizenship. I think it is a human right in a civilized society. I think we clearly spend enough money to afford it. And we can engineer a form of universal health care system in this country. I also think it's good economic policy because I think if we want people kind of constantly trying to pursue whatever economic opportunities they think are best for them. We don't want them trapped in their job because of healthcare or shackled to their job because of healthcare. And a lot of Americans are currently in that situation. So universal healthcare should be part of the Democratic Party platform. And I think that's what most Americans think of when they hear Medicare for all. The problem with Medicare for all, the proposal that Senator Sanders and Senator Warren are behind, it's a plan that will actually cause upheaval to the US healthcare system. Because it's something way beyond universal health care. It is universal health care, but it's single-payer universal health care, which means the only payer of health care is the government. And that's actually a very rare system around the world. A lot of countries actually have universal health care, which is another reason why we should. But very few of them have a single-payer system. Most of them have a, a mixed model, as I call it. That's what Germany has. That's what France has. That's what Sweden has where everyone gets basic health care as a right from the government, but then they have the ability to make choices. And that is many, in many ways what our Medicare program is right now. If you think about Medicare as its own universal health care system for people over 65, it is not a single-payer system. It is a mixed model because Medicare beneficiaries get basic Medicare as a right, and then they have the option to completely opt out of it if they want and choose something called Medicare Advantage, which is private insurance. And by the way, 50% of seniors, new, newly minted seniors, are choosing Medicare Advantage. Or Medicare beneficiaries can actually buy a supplemental plan, and about 80% of them do that, to enhance their Medicare plan. So the single-payer system that is being proposed by Senator Sanders and Senator Warren, for example, just as one example, will take what I just described as Medicare right now and take away the ability of people to get Medicare Advantage. It'll take away the ability of people to get these supplemental plans. So not only is that bad policy, and the reason it's bad policy is because Medicare doesn't reimburse the cost of healthcare. And there's been study after study, including one that just came out in the, in the Chicago Tribune the other day, where they talked about rural hospitals. And they talked about if all the bills were paid at Medicare rates, which is the point I've been making, most rural hospitals in this country would close. 
because Medicare doesn't pay enough. But putting aside the policy, the politics, think about the politics of the Democratic nominee for president running against Donald Trump and Donald Trump being able to go to American seniors and say, how many of you have Medicare Advantage? 80% of their hands kind of figuratively going up. And him being able to say, well, Senator Warner, Senator Sanders want to take that away from you. I just think that's a terrible thing to run on. And it's bad policy. And it'll never happen. I don't think anyone in the world actually thinks we'll ever pass a law making private insurance options illegal. So there's just one example of why I agree that people want universal health care and they associate Medicare for all with universal health care. And they're right to want universal health care. I have a plan called Better Care that gives every single American health care for free from the government, but it allows them to have options. When you look at polling data and you ask the American people how they feel about making private insurance illegal, the support for Medicare for all goes from like 70% down to like the teens. Now, I, I'm one of the few Democrats who actually raises these distinctions. And what I like to say to, to my fellow Democrats, and people get mad at me for doing it, and I'm like, listen, the, this is why we have a primary, because I can assure you Donald Trump won't be hesitant to raise these distinctions. In fact, he'll spend a billion dollars communicating these distinctions to the American people. All right. So if you're going Long-winded to Long-winded answer. Well. But that's why we like podcasts. Right. Okay. So if you're going to give health care, I mean, let's just take your plan. If you're going to give health care for free or some element of yes. health care for free, where does that money come from? So again, unlike their plan, mine's fully paid for. So let me explain how mine works. And I'll try to be quicker. So we leave Medicare alone. Medicare kind of works. It's not perfect, but we leave Medicare alone. So then what we're doing is we're focusing on people from when they're born to their 65. We give every one of those folks a free, basic government health care plan that is consistent with the minimum benefits in the Affordable Care Act. And we roll the Medicaid program into that. Because if you had a free federal plan, you don't need the Medicaid program anymore. And Medicaid's really broken in this country. So you roll the Medicaid into that. And the assumption that the states continue to make the same contribution that they made towards Medicaid to this new federal plan. And you pay for this universal expansion that I just described by getting rid of the corporate deductibility of healthcare, which is the largest tax loophole in our tax code. It costs the American taxpayers $4 trillion over 10 years. And the way that works is if you work for Montgomery Media here and they give you healthcare, you don't pay a tax on that benefit. If they gave you a housing allowance or if they gave you a car allowance, you'd have to actually have to pay tax on it, but you don't pay tax on your healthcare benefit. But they, if they were a for-profit, they would be able to deduct that plan. So if you think about it, it's a big loophole. So I propose to close that loophole, which means corporations would have to would not be able to deduct the value of the health care they provide people. And so people, people immediately say, well, that'll be bad because it'll affect the corporate health care market. Well, under my plan, it won't because the way it works under my plan, if you're under 65, you get a better care plan as a right of citizenship. If you don't want it, you can opt out of it. You'll get a voucher, which you can then turn into your employer, for example, which they could use to help pay for the health care they provide you. Because if you opt out, the theory is one of the reasons you may be opting out is because you're getting an employer plan. Or you may opt out and just want to buy your own plan from Kaiser, in which case you could opt out, get your voucher, and go buy your own Kaiser plan and take your voucher, put that in, and you probably have to write a check for some more. Or you can take your basic government health care and you can buy a supplemental plan on top. So that's the way better care would work, standard government plan that people would either take as it is 
or upgrade with a supplemental or opt out, get a voucher and buy private insurance. That plan is fully paid for by eliminating the corporate deductibility of healthcare and then taking the Affordable Care Act subsidies, which currently exist, which theoretically wouldn't need anymore, and applying those. So by eliminating the corporate deductibility, you're taking it out of my paycheck. Well, right? no. So this let's just let's go through how it would work. So so let's say you get health care from your company. Mm-hmm. You're not taxed on that. And I'm not proposing that to be changed. Right. But what would happen but it's, it's, it, a, it's actually a deduction though. It shows up on yeah. my paycheck as a deduction, correct? Well, it's it, no, it's a deduction for your for your employer. Let's say your health care costs ten thousand dollars. Right, you get health care. I'm not talking about you know Medicare. You also contribute towards Medicare. That's right. a deduction, but that's different. Let's talk about your current health care. Let's say you have an Aetna plan from Montgomery Media. That plan may be worth ten thousand dollars a year. You pay no tax on that. You get a ten thousand dollar benefit from Montgomery Media, and, and it's tax free to you. Montgomery Media can deduct the ten thousand from their earnings. I would take that away. But what would happen is, let's say we have a better care plan and you want to still get health care from Montgomery Media, you'd opt out of the federal plan. You'd say, thanks, but no thanks. I don't need it. You'd get a voucher or a tax credit because you're not using something that you're entitled to. And that tax credit can be used only for the purchase of health care. And you could turn that tax credit into Montgomery Media and they would use that to contribute to the health care, which now they don't get a deduction for. You see what I mean? Okay. That's how it actually works. Okay. Now, of course, trust me, it's fully paid for and companies would still provide health care. And I've run this by, you know, most companies think this is a pretty smart way of creating universal health care. How many times have politicians say, trust me, it's fully paid for? Well, I've actually had it modeled. I mean, look, you never know. Maybe models don't perform the way people think. But unlike people who are talking about Medicare for all, which they have no way of paying for, like they don't even try. Every proposal I put forth. I actually try to figure out how I'm going to pay for it. Now, some of those things are uncomfortable because they involve tax increases or that kind of stuff. So what about also um, the Green New Deal? You've also been critical of that. The problem with the Green New Deal is that it sets an unrealistic goal. And I think if you set unrealistic goals, people don't take them seriously and they never happen. So let me, let me give you, explain what I mean by that. The Green New Deal proposes to get to net zero in 12 years. All the scientists and like the UN Commission on Climate Change, all believe we have to get to net zero by 2050, which is incredibly hard to do. But that's what they think the goal needs to be, right? So that's 31 years from now. The Green New Deal proposes to get there in 12. That is viewed by most people as an absolute impossibility unless you were to cause huge havoc on the standard of living of people around the world. And I always draw the analogy if Kennedy, instead of calling for us to go to the moon by the end of the decade, he would have called for us to go to Jupiter. It would have been a more ambitious goal, but people wouldn't have taken it seriously because there was physically no way of doing it. When Kennedy said, let's go to the moon by the end of the decade, he actually consulted with mathematicians and physicists. And they said, listen, Mr. President, this is incredibly hard to do, but we actually see a way we could make it happen. Whereas... Net zero by 2030, no one actually sees – 80% of our energy comes from fossil fuels right now. That's what it was five years ago, right? We have no offsets for airplanes, for big ships, for farming. We have no way of getting there by 2030. It'll take the greatest coordinated government effort in in maybe since World War II, except on a global scale, to get us to net zero by 2050. 
So the first problem I have with the Green New Deal is I don't like when people are not honest with the American people about what our goals should really be. Because I think that just opens it up for people to say, physically impossible, why even try? Second problem I have with the Green New Deal is it ties action on climate to creating a form of universal health care, to creating universal basic income, right, to these other things. And first of all, I want universal health care as well, as I just described. But I don't want to tie action on climate to universal health care because that just makes it harder to do action on climate. And I think action on climate is incredibly important. And I certainly don't want to tie action on climate to universal basic income because I think universal basic income is a dumb idea. And, and a fraction of the American people support it. So that's the other problem I have with it. it, it I don't view it as serious. If you want to be serious about climate, you have to do three things. The first is you have to have a goal that we can hit. The second is you have to start making real progress against that, against that goal right away. And the only way to do that is to have a plan that doesn't hurt American workers. Because at the end of the day, American workers in a political system are never going to sign off on something that hurts their pocketbook. You know, half the American people can't afford their basic necessities. So if you start saying, I'm going to solve climate by dramatically increasing your energy costs overnight, they're never going to vote for that. And the third thing is you have to realize there's a global challenge here. And the only way to address the global challenge is with innovation. So what I've proposed to do on climate, which I think is, will get us to 2050, and I think by far is the best climate plan. So the first thing I would do is put a price on carbon, a carbon fee. Some people call it a carbon tax. I introduced that in the Congress with bipartisan support. It's the only bipartisan bill on climate introduced in the Congress. We put a price on carbon. We put a fee on carbon. We put a tax on carbon, whatever you want to call it. That will increase the price of fossil fuel-related energy, make them less desirable, and cause everyone to shift faster to renewables. It was modeled to cut CO2 emissions by 90 percent by 2040. We take all the money that it raises, which is $3 trillion over 10 years, and we give it back to the American people in a dividend. And everyone gets the same dividend. So if you're super rich, if you're Bill Gates, you get the same dividend as a hardworking American. And what that means is for people who are in the working class, their dividends are larger than the amount that their energy prices go up. Whereas for Bill Gates, his dividend is smaller than the amount his energy price goes. It's a progressive tax. And that can get done on a bipartisan way because even the Republicans who support it realize it's not a, quote, tax increase. Yeah, you're putting a price on fossil fuels, but you're giving the money back to the American people in these dividends or tax credits, basically. And I believe I can get that passed in my first year as president. So that's a real solution that can get done right away and actually start changing the trajectory on this. That's a big part of my plan. The other big part of my plan is a massive, massive investment in innovation, both in the United States of America and around the globe. And it's in battery, storage, transmission, and direct air capture technologies. Because I fundamentally do not believe we will get to net zero by 2050 unless we invent energy solutions that actually don't exist today. Because one of the problems we have is there's going to be a billion to two billion people around the world who are going to go from poverty to some form of non-poverty in the next several decades, which is an incredibly good thing, right? Every day the poverty rate goes down in the world. 
for 30 years. It's been unbelievable, actually. Two billion people have been lifted out of poverty. One of the things when a human being gets lifted out of poverty, they start using a lot more energy because they start having a more of a, an engaged life. We cannot expect poor and developing countries around the world to not give these people energy. Their political systems are not going to sustain these people not getting energy. These countries, the only source of energy they really have at this moment in time is fossil fuel-related energy. So I believe the wealthy countries of the world, I've called for something called Paris 2.0, which is based on innovation, where all the wealthy countries in the world contribute money and intellectual property to effectively build the technologies of the future in almost like an NIH for the world, right? If you think about the way NIH works, around energy with a view that the solutions that get developed get given to the poor countries in the world. Because that's the only way, because it doesn't matter if we get to net zero by 2050, which we, by the way, we absolutely should because we have to lead by example, but we got to get the whole world there too. Well, how do you get China there? They are right now the world's number one polluter. You got to get them on board with programs like I'm talking about at the end of the day. You know, when we launch Paris 2.0, China's got to be right there with us. I mean, there's no other solution. The only solution to getting the world, because, you know, the, the funny thing is the United States of America is in the best position of any country of any size. There's no country better positioned to get to net zero than we are. So really, if we want to get the world to net zero, we got to figure out how to get India, Africa. You know how many people are going to, you know what the growth in Africa is going to be? I mean, Africa is going to be the fastest growing economy in the world in the next several decades. Huge amounts of energy is going to be needed to, to fund or to fuel the growth in population in Africa. They don't have alternatives right now. And I believe the wealthy countries got to get together and basically solve this problem. But that's U.S. leadership. But that's also an honest conversation about climate. Let's get back on to, like, raw politics for a little bit. What was, what's been your... Spend too much time on policy. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> what, what's been your best day on so far on the campaign trail? Well, listen, my best day is always when I'm just campaigning. I mean, I've done 400, probably 450 events at this point. And when I say events, what I mean, I don't mean, I'm not talking fundraisers. I'm talking meet and greets in coffee shops, people's living rooms, you know, and in, in like in New Hampshire, they have all these kind of town hall facilities, meeting places, they call. And you're meeting people and you're talking to them about your vision for the future and you're answering their questions. And I've had a lot of days that are packed with six, seven, eight of those kind of events. And those are the best days. Those are the best days by far. What's been your worst day? I think the worst day for me on the campaign trail is when the DNC debate rules were announced and they said that qualify for the debates, you had to have a certain number of donors, which I viewed as completely nonsensical and disadvantages a candidate like me or several others, meaning raising money online is a couple of candidates, it's quite easy for them to do because they already have had huge national presences. But the other candidates that raise money online are ones that put forth messages that really appeal to the most partisan side of our politics. And that's not who I am. So let me give you an example. If I put out a bunch of messages calling for the elimination of the Electoral College, which I don't like, by the way, 
But I'm also honest with the American people. It's never going to change because you have to amend our Constitution to change it. And the small states who are advantaged by the Electoral College are never going to vote for that constitutional amendment. But if I put out messages and make that a big part of my campaign, I'll raise a lot of money online. If I talk about expanding early childhood education, which I think is the most important thing we need to do to deal with the educational inequality that exists in this country, because well-off kids get it and poor kids don't, and it fundamentally changes the trajectory, and it never gets talked about enough, if I put that out online, no one cares. And that's the problem with the Twitter world right now, right? It does not actually represent the American people, and it certainly doesn't even represent the Democratic Party. But if you're required by the DNC to get a dollar from these people, you got to give them that kind of red meat. And that's kind of not what my campaign or that's not what I'm about. So that's been a dis- that's, that has been discouraging because I think for reasons I will never quite understand, the DNC decided to create this donor standard to be on the debate stage. So that's been a struggle. I'm sure that debate standard was formed with Tom Perez's mm-hmm. affirmation, and he's all but a neighbor of yours. I know that. across the county. I would think if anybody had an opportunity to uh, to change that standard, it would have been John Delaney. Well, no, I mean, look, at I, 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 I know Tom, and I like Tom, and I respect Tom. I've obviously talked to him about this stuff, but uh, they kind of dropped this on people. No one saw this coming. No one even know where it came from. No one thought that this would ever be a standard, because normally this is the way it works. Typically, the way people have been on the debate stage is if you've had a certain level of public office, right? If you've been a senator, a member of Congress, governor, something like that, you're on the debate stage. Uh, historically, when the fields have been very large, they have occasionally put polling criteria to be on the debate stage. So everyone just assumed what the DNC would do is they would do what they've done historically, which is basically... If you've served at a certain level in government, you're invited at least to all the early debates. And then if the debate stage continued to be too crowded in the eyes of the DNC, which they have absolute discretion to make that determination, they would effectively create polling standards. And they say, you know, to be on the debate stage, you got to poll at X percent in the early states or whatever. And that's always worked just fine because that seemed pretty logical to people. Let, let's have people who are polling better be in the debates. But they decided that they were going to have this. And I think when it was announced, most people were like, whose idea was that? I have my own opinion as to where it came from. I mean, certain candidates, Bernie Sanders, a few others, raise a lot of money in small dollar donors. Right. But we've also had the 2016 election where polling data has proven to be somewhat suspect. And it is the 21st century where people have an ability to do these kinds of small dollar donations effectively and cheaply. So it doesn't seem like it's that far out of whack. Well, the question is, is it a criteria for determining who debates? Because if I were to say to you, for example, that about 40% of these small dollar donations come from California and New York, would that change your perspective on how you think about it? Or if I were to say to you, over 40% of the American people can't afford their basic necessities, And they're obviously not giving money online. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't. And if you look at people who give money online, they tend to be more affluent. And they tend to be from California, New York, and they tend to be activists. So if, if if you were to decide that those are the people you want to determine the debate stage, 
then this is a relevant criteria. You know, said differently, he could have rolled out, we're going to prioritize polling in California and New York to be on the debate stage. I think most people would have said, that's ridiculous. But ineffectively, that's what he did, if you see what I mean. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> if Iowa rolls around and you do decide to back out, there is a governor's race that will be coming up in Maryland. Have you given any thought to that? No. I believe in that Lincoln expression, which is you can only paddle to the next bend in the river. And the next bend in the river for me is the Iowa caucus. And that's what I'm paddling towards. Okay. Has, has there been any time in the last month where you thought, if I had just stayed in Congress, I could be part of this impeachment proceeding? Yeah, I mean, listen, I miss Congress. You know, I, I don't think you should have regrets in life unless you really feel like you made a bad decision based on the facts you knew at the time. You know, I think it's fine to have regrets in life if you actually looked at the facts and just like made some totally stupid decision based on the facts. Based on the facts that I knew at the time, the decision I made to do this was the right decision for me. You wouldn't want to be walking walking the halls now uh, trying to impeach the guy whose job you want to take? Yeah, well, of course I would because I think he should be impeached based on what's happened. Um, So and I miss Congress. Congress was great. Okay, Mr. Delaney, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This has been John Delaney on uh, Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media. Our engineer today was Carolyn Moskowskis. Join us next time.